Martin Luther, the great reformer and champion of solo fide, that is the teaching that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works, wrote a letter called The Disputation Concerning Justification. And in this, he argues that while we are not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. Luther writes, I reply to the argument then that our obedience is necessary for salvation. It is, therefore, a partial cause of our justification. Many things are necessary which are not a cause and do not justify. As, for instance, the earth is necessary, and yet it does not justify. If man the sinner wants to be saved, he must necessarily be present, just as he asserts that I must also be present. What Augustine said is true. He who has created you without you will not save you without you. And he says this, and this is what I want you to hear. Works are necessary to salvation, but they are not the cause of salvation because faith alone gives life. Outward salvation shows faith to be present just as fruit shows a tree to be good. We could summarize Luther's teaching on this matter that we are not saved by good works but that we are saved for good works. And this, friends, is what is at the heart of Paul's letter to Titus. Titus has been sent by Paul to Crete, an island colony filled with Christians who have been saved under the gospel preaching of Paul and his missionary work there. And Paul couldn't stay around to make sure all the churches were established, that they had the proper leadership, and so he sent Titus to go down to Crete and to get things in order. But just as it was in many of the churches, if not most, that as soon as God began a work, it seemed as if the enemy would come right along and undo that work. Friends, that's the same practice the enemy has today. The one the Lord promised in the parable of the sower and the seed, that when the seed is sown, that sometimes the enemy will come along and pluck it up and carried it away. Well, friends, this is exactly what was going on down in Crete. The enemy had come in and began to pluck up the the seeds that had been sown by Paul and through the false teachers there began to pull people away from the truth and into lies, into myths, and into, most importantly, unholy living. The congregation began to suffer from ungodliness due to these false teachers And so Paul sends Titus down there to Crete in order to bring structure to the church. So churches are to have order. They're they're not a collection of chaotic events. There's order in God's church, in Christ's bride. But also there's proper leadership. Titus had been given the responsibility by Paul to appoint a plurality of elders that is, more than one elder in each of the congregations there in Crete. Men who were godly 
and who were able to teach. Men who would not only lead in godliness, but also guard against ungodliness. And this letter really helps us to understand God's means to holiness in our own lives. You know, often when we talk about sanctification, which is the growing in grace, the growing in Christ-likeness, that process of change in our lives, we often talk about it in individualistic terms. It's you and I, our individual struggle with sin and our pursuit of holiness. And that's not wrong. The Bible often uses individualistic language in our pursuit of holiness. But also, God uses the church, and most importantly, the preaching of God's word, the teaching of the elders, to bring about godliness in your lives. This is why we as a congregation, and why I regularly teach you that you cannot be a very healthy Christian apart from the local church. You see, that's God's design. It's God's plan for the church to build up the saints through the church. And that's what I hope to argue and show you through this letter this morning. So last week, if you weren't here, you're kind of jumping in with us. We, we, we considered Titus chapter 1. Today we'll consider Titus 2. And next week, we'll consider Titus chapter 3. I've organized the, the, the series in this way, that God has given us elders pastors, a plurality of pastors, to lead us in godliness, to teach us godliness, and to remind us that we are redeemed for godliness. And so this morning we're going to consider Titus 2. Really, Titus 2 is, a, is an application of, of Titus 1, right? It seems pretty natural. Uh, and I know, I went to seminary to learn that. Um, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. But as for you, that is Titus, as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Titus. 
Well, we could summarize chapter 2 in this way. The Lord Jesus Christ has called, equipped, and exhorted the elders of each local church to teach. To teach the congregation sound doctrine that leads them to godly living. In short, the aim of the elders' teaching ministry is holy living. The aim of every sermon, the aim of every Bible study, the aim of every counseling time, the aim of the overall ministry of the elders is holy living, godliness, Christ-likeness. And so the, the, the purpose of our time this morning is to really argue, to demonstrate to you both the elders' responsibility to teach and also the congregation's responsibility to follow. Elders teach, congregations follow. Elders lead, congregations follow. And so in our passage this morning, Paul lays out the responsibilities of the elders' teaching ministry. He first tells us the responsibilities, then he tells us the material, And finally, the motivation. Responsibility to teach. The material to teach. What are elders going to teach? And then finally, the motivation in teaching. What is it that motivates them? If you have your Bibles open, I'm just going to show you very quickly the structure of this chapter. I hope this serves you well. Um, Paul uses a literary device in order to uh, sandwich... The point in the middle. He bookends, uh, big word, inclusio, right? So that's the literary device that he's using. Notice what he does, verse 1. But as for you, teach. Verse 15, teach these things. Okay? So Paul here is, is saying, listen, I want you to focus on the teaching ministry. So it's kind of an A, B, B, A kind of pattern here. This is what I want you to do. All right? So the thrust of the structure is meant to, to show us this singular point. Elders, pastors, teach. That's what they do. That is to say, the primary responsibility of the elders of the local church, my primary responsibility, isn't to answer the phone, Vacuum the carpet, but to teach. The primary task for which all elders will stand before the Lord is how did you do teaching? No, no, Pastor, I know you did a lot of good things. You know, you had a lot of great ministry going on, but were you teaching your church? Not where were you teaching the outside world. Not where were you teaching other pastors. Not where were you teaching other churches. Were you teaching your church? Elders teach. I'll have to just show you that very quickly here. Uh, there's a lot here, and, I, and you're going to get really irritated with me this morning because we're not going to you know, kind of spend the, the 4K level that you probably want here, but we're going to get an overview, okay? 
And so uh, tarry with me as we do this overview of this chapter. The elders' responsibilities to teach. We see that verse 1 and verse 15. But as for you, teach. Now as you think about the context, Titus is going down into a mess. Okay, Remember last week over here in verse, thir- uh, verse 12, just to refresh you again. This is what Titus, this is the context of Titus's ministry in Crete. Uh, one of the Cretans... A prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. The culture was a mess. Even one of their own can identify that they were wicked people. They were people filled with evil desires. They couldn't tell the truth if you, if you made them. They were liars, evil beasts, and lazy. Sounds as if it's describing us as Americans. Not Cretans, right? Now as you think about all that Titus was to go and do, all the activity that Titus could have been doing, the primary task that Paul gives to him, and then I think by implication the elders, right? because Titus is just going to pass the the baton on, uh, Titus is going to say, okay, I'm going to set the standard. I'm going to come in. I'm going to say, this is what an elder is to do. I'm going to model it for you, and then you do, right? Elders were to teach. And really, this is the application, as I said, of chapter 1 and verse 9. Elders, verse 9, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that they may give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Elders teach by exhortation and instruction. They teach. They don't pull out the TV and plug in a DVD. They get up and they teach. And if an elder can't teach, then he ain't an elder. That's Paul's point. If you can't teach, if you can't carry a crowd, if you put everybody to sleep, and I know I'm guilty of that sometimes, uh, But if people aren't following you, you're not a leader, right? Leaders have followers, and they're able to communicate God's word accurately. Now, we'll get to the material in just a moment, but I want you to stress the point that the primary means that God has given his church is the preaching ministry of the elders. Friends, this has been true since the Reformation and been true all the way since Titus was written. That God builds his church through the preaching ministry of the church. And it is tempting today in America, in our contemporary culture, to give ourselves to other things. Music, music ministries, uh, puppet shows and and, and skits and all these things. Uh, Friends, that is not what the church is gathering to do. The church is gathering together to hear God's word exhorted to them. Why? Because we like to listen to long monologues? No, our culture hates monologues, right? I mean, you consider just recently, in recent days, when, when, when the uh, senators were putting on their show, right? You turn on uh, C-SPAN, you, you, you watch them, boy, they're giving a fiery speech. They look like they're really energizing the crowd. One of the things that doesn't happen in their speeches often is the camera get panned out. And here's the thing, when that camera pans out, that place is empty. Ain't not a soul in sight, right? It's a ghost town in there. But it isn't for... 
For us, we gather not to hear speeches. We gather because God has said in Romans 10 that I will build my church through the preaching ministry. Do you believe, Romans 10, that faith, your faith, comes by hearing the word of Christ preached? Do you believe that? Do you revolve your schedule around that truth? Do you revolve and say, you know, if you ever consider for a moment, just pause for a moment and consider, you know, I, I'm really struggling in my faith. Have you ever equated the fact that maybe your faith is struggling because you're not regularly sitting under the preaching ministry of God's Word? Now, you may be here. <laughs> and I'm not talking about attendance, okay? I mean, are you, sit, are you allowing the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly? Or is it one in one in ear and out the other? Elders teach by exhortation and instruction. Now, I want to be very clear. This does not mean that... that the, the main preaching elder is the only elder that's important to the life of the congregation. Okay, so, so, so don't hear me and say that the regular preaching pastor, the one who's standing preaching week in and week out, you know, if you had multiple elders, that he's the only important one. No, no, no. God uses other means of exhortation and instruction. That may be through a Bible study. That may be through one-on-one -on -one discipling. That may be through a variety of means. But my point is this. I want you to see that the primary means that God has given to his church is the preaching of God's word. Preachers are paid to say that. No. God said that. I want you to see here also that elders teach, verse 15, by reproving the congregation. In other words, I'm going to say this in the negative. If an elder never corrects, he's not being faithful in his eldering. To be faithful in the teaching ministry, there has to be some reproving, right? I remember as a young kid, you know, I'd hear comments like, man, that preacher really stepped on some toes today. Or, or whenever I began to preach, you know, I'd get some of the senior saints, they'd come up to me afterwards and say, yeah, go, you got him today, pastor, Right? As if they had never heard a pastor reprove them before, right? Uh, young guys get in trouble a lot. I know I do because I, I end up, you know, saying things, offending people unintentionally. Um, but what I want you to see is that the reproving ministry is a part of the teaching ministry of the elder. I would be unfaithful to the task of preaching. Other elders would be unfaithful if they did not say, not this, but that. That will kill you. This will give you life. As we'll see in a moment, junk food preaching is reprovless preaching. I just made a word up. Junk food preaching is when you just walk away feeling better about yourself and not having a clearer, more accurate picture of your sin. In other words, preaching is like when you go to the eye doctor and they do that annoying thing. Can you see this? Can you see that? Better now, better there. That's what preaching is. It's giving you clarity. A clear vision of what sin is. And who God is. Well, not only that, we see, look at the middle here of the, of the, of the chapter, verses 7 through 8. And I know I'm not going this verse by verse, and I apologize. I thought this would be helpful. In verses 7 through 8, 
Paul turns the camera right uh, from the congregation to the elders, particularly to Titus. Look at Paul's exhortation to Titus. He says, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul says, listen, you need to be a model of good works. That is, that one of the means that the elders teach is by living godly lives. That's what we considered last week, and I'm not going to re-preach that sermon over again, but the point is this. One of the ways that elders teach the congregation to be godly is to actually be godly, to be a model, right? A mirror of Christ's likeness. Paul does this over and over again in the New Testament. He says, listen, follow me as I follow Christ. Now, that's not self-centeredness. That's not because I'm something special or the other elders are something incredible. And boy, you really need to follow them. He's a visionary leader. No, rather, all I should be doing, all the other elders should be doing is mirroring Christ to you. Modeling good works. He says that, that the elders are to model in their living in their lives, the way they live. That's what chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 was about. Lives distinct, attractive, because they're godly. Not because they're innovative. Not because they have charisma. Not because they, they're, just, they're really interesting. There's some interesting preachers out there, but they ain't worth listening to. Verses 7 through 8, we see that the elder is to model godliness in his teaching. He's to show integrity, right? He's walking the walk, not just talking the talk. He has integrity that what he says, he lives. It would be wrong for me to exhort you to live in a way that I am unwilling to live myself. And so the measure of integrity is to say, listen, does this guy actually believe what he's saying? Does he have dignity? Does he seek to to get onto his hobby horses and preach what he wants to preach? Or does the Word of God set the agenda for the congregation? Friends, this is why I preach through books of the Bible. I preach through books of the Bible so when I preach on your sin, you don't email me and complain. Like, that was the next verse, right? Sorry. We... We preach books of the Bible to set the agenda. Nothing wrong with topical preaching. It has its place. But regular expositional preaching through books of the Bible helps the preacher set the agenda on the will of God rather than his own will. If you look at a preacher's ministry and he keeps preaching on the same things all the time, he's always preaching on the end times, right? That's his favorite thing. It's all he talks about. No. There's much more to preach about. He's sound in his speech. Sound speech. That means speech that that is that's not, you know, like on a waterbed. It's just flowing back and forth, ebbing and flowing. It makes you seasick just watching it, right? It's up and down. No, no. We need we need preaching that's steady, annoyingly steady, annoyingly steadfast. That's why I love the ministry of John MacArthur. I seriously, if you turned on a John MacArthur tape from 1960, it would sound the same, consistent, faithful as it was preached today. Sound, steady, steadfast. 
Notice here the result of such thing is that the false teachers are silenced. As again, we saw last week, the way to prepare a congregation for false teaching is healthy teaching. That's what we'll see here in just a moment. Well, friends, the, the final thing I want to want to show you here is in verse 15, and we'll move on to other points. Declare these things, Paul says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus is going into a hot place. It's LZ. There's enemy fire, right? He's not going to, you know, coast it out in the easy, comfortable parish church, you know, the countryside church. Where, where, no, no, he is going into the midst of war. He's going into the midst of, of battle. And he needed to know something. He needed to hear something. That when you stand in the pulpit to preach, when you exhort and you declare, you do it not with your own authority but with the authority of Christ. This is both a very frightening thing, but a powerful thing. It's frightening because preachers that preach don't preach on their own authority. In other words, they have to answer to somebody. And one of the things that should comfort you this morning, every time you hear a false teacher, where every time you hear a faithful preacher, is that preacher doesn't work for that congregation. That preacher doesn't work for that church. He works for the Lord Christ. And Jesus is the kind of accountability you want in his life. We need preachers who come humbly and soberly to the teaching ministry of the church, whether it's preaching or teaching in small groups or through Bible studies, it needs to come with a weight that of accountability, but also with the power of the words of Christ. Because remember what Paul said in Romans 10, it's faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. Not through the words of Chris, the words of Christ. The primary task of the elders is to instruct the congregation in holy living. Teaching sound doctrine leads to holy living. That's the point Paul's making. It is through the faithful teaching ministry of the elders that the congregation is exhorted and rebuked toward godliness. This is the task that they have been given this is how elders shepherd the church. That's what Paul says. That's what Christ has revealed. Well, let's look secondly, what are they to teach? What do elders teach? Do we go down to the Lifeway bookstore and pull off the greatest uh, you know, church growth technique? Pur Purpose-driven life or you know, simple church? Which is it? Purpose-driven church or simple church? I don't know. I get confused. What materials should the elders teach? Well, well thankfully... <laughs> God's given us his word, and uh, we, we find uh, what we're to teach right here. Titus, I want you to go and teach. But don't worry, I'm going to tell you what to teach. This is the material. Paul points out four groups of people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. Four Groups, right? He, he, he covers the whole congregation, doesn't he? That's right. Old, young, 
male, female. Whole congregation is exhorted here. Now, of course, Paul could have said much more than what he does. But I want you to consider here for just a moment. Of all the things that Titus could have went and taught about, Paul says, this is what you want to teach about. In other words, I want you to teach them how to live lives that are distinct and different, that, that at the end of the day, only God could have created. See, what we want is a church that God and God only could create. We want people who live lives of godliness and who say, only God could have made me godly because let me tell you how I was before. That's what Paul will give himself to in chapter 3. That this is what you once were, but that's not who you are now. Considering all that he could have taught, the one thing that would inoculate the congregation from false teaching would be healthy doctrine. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 1. He says to him, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine. That's a, it's a medical term. It, it means sound, solid. It means healthy. You see, they've been, they've been living off fast food on junk food, on unsound, unhealthy doctrine. You see, when a Christian lives on junk food theology, they will be susceptible to ungodliness. But it is sound doctrine. Doctrine. I know it's scary. It's like, oh, doctrine, that's like for really smart people. No, that's for Christians. Have you ever studied the, the doctrine of the Trinity? The doctrine of the Scriptures? Have you ever studied the doctrine of, of salvation? The doctrine of end times? And as Christians, we want to give ourselves to studying these things because they are the inoculation against false doctrine. You see, when you're unhealthy, you can't fight off illnesses. If you eat a bunch of junk food, and you live off of junk food, and you never have good, hearty meal, what happens? You end up prone to sickness. You get sick easily because you're not eating the right things, right? Isn't that annoying when you go to the doctor, you've been sick? How have you been eating? What have you been eating? Really, doctor, I came for medicine, not for a lecture on, uh, from my mom on how to eat right. No, all doctors will, will ultimately say, how have you been eating? Because right food leads to right living. Well, brothers and sisters, it's true of theology. Right theology leads to right living. And when we feast upon what we want to hear all the time, things that tickle our ears, rather than meditating on the rich doctrine of Scripture, this is why so many, as I said last week, can easily turn on the TV and sit engrossed in the false teaching that is displayed through most TV preaching ministries. So easy. For us to be swayed by false teaching because we don't know what the true truth is. And so the elders are to teach sound doctrine. Not because they love doctrine. Not because they're just you know big theology heads that just want to talk about theology all the time. But rather because they know that right doctrine lead, leads to right living. So let's look at it very quickly. Um, we won't spend a lot of time here. I will leave these to your further study. But I want to, to show you the contrast between 
uh, our world and biblical Christianity. First, he exhorts older men in the congregation. Now, again, age is relative, right? So, I, so, so I'm not going to set a, a, an age here, right? So I'm going to say, you know, okay, this is to 50 and above, all right? So 49 and below, just ignore this. Uh, no, 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 right? So this is, this is relative. In other words, this is the point. The exhortation to older men and older women should be the aspiration of every person in this room. Not because you're going to be an elder, not because you're going to be a deacon or deaconess, but because you want to be godly. So if you're a man this morning, your aspiration is verse 2. If you're a woman this morning, your aspiration is verse 3 through 5. And if you're a young man this morning, so if you're you know, 75 and you're suing tender so that you can be uh, 55, um, that's fine. Um, you can call yourself a young man. The point I want you to come away with is there is one exhortation that unites all these exhortations together. And is the word self-control. The distinguishing characteristic of a Christian from the non-Christian secular world is self-control. That is the one characteristic that you'll find in each of these categories is, is self-control. Well, let's first look at older men. Older men were to be sober-minded. They were to be steady and steadfast in mind. They were to be settled in their faith. Older men in the church today, are you stable in your faith? Are you steady? Or, or do you perhaps have some questions? Like, I don't mean like, you know, when's Jesus coming again and on the exact dates, but I mean, is he coming again? That's a settled issue, Right? So we need older men who are sober-minded, that aren't just taken captive by the, 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 the prevailing winds of the culture. They're not drawn up and drawn away into fanciful things, but their mind is sober, steady, steadfast, dignified. This signifies a man who is, is not given in to cheap and tawdry things, things that are unimportant, but a man who seeks to be Honest and good, noble. We see here also in the list in verse 2, self-controlled. The idea here of this word self-controlled is that your emotions and your mind is under control. It's not driven, again, by the winds of the culture. Again, you kind of see that each of these ideas and then this fourth one, soundness, all kind of interrelate to create a web of security. Congregations need Secure men. Men who are sound in their theology. Men who are willing to stand strong against false teaching. Who are not easily persuaded by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the desires of riches. Men who are steadfast and steady. Notice what he says about their soundness. That they are sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. A godly man is one who is patient, one who has endurance, one who doesn't easily give up on a sinner or on a congregation, one who is steadfast and perseveres through the, the trials that will come their way. Do you know any men like that? 
You know, men in our own congregation, men, do you aspire to this? This is very different than what you would look for in the world, the characters in the world. This is a godly man. What about a godly woman? What does she look like? Look at verses 3 and 4. A godly woman is one who's reverent in behavior. This implies submissiveness within the congregation. They're not rebels. Now, if you've been in a Baptist church long, no, they're reverent. They don't just go with the, the flow, but they're reverent. They're submissive to the elders and the teaching ministry of the church. They're not slanders. They use their words to build others up, not tear them down. Their ministry is a word ministry. They use their words to encourage sisters, to encourage the saints. I can't tell you the times that that a sister has encouraged me in the preaching ministry here. Sure, there's much they could have said negative, but, but it was all about edification and building up. Not slaves to much wine. They're, they're not controlled by anything. And they're teachers of good. They're trainers of women. Older women training up younger women. That's, that's the picture we see here. That's a Titus 2 woman. A Titus 2 woman is, is one who gives herself to others in the congregation. They train younger women to love their husbands and their children. And you might want to you know, pause here and say, you know, well, why do I need to teach younger women to love husbands and children? <laughs> right. Every woman who has a, a husband or, or, or children can t- testify why you need to learn how to love children and husbands. Because there's days where they're not very lovely or lovable. The point that Paul is making here is that the church is to be equipped by the church and not the world. The ministry that should be going on in the local church is a discipling ministry in which we are in the lives of one another, building up and exhorting one another to Christ-likeness. Finally, in verse 6, Paul says to the the elders are to teach young men to be self-controlled. Now, if you think about it, he, he's, he seems to be kind of easy on the young guys, right? No, this is what he does. He says, listen, young men, you don't need to be worried about all this other stuff. You've got one task to worry about. <laughs> You've got one thing you need to focus on, and that's self-control. You see, if you work on self-control, all these other things will come. Boy, isn't that a word for today? Self-control. Having your life and emotions, not not quickly running after the next great thing. Well, in verses nine through ten, and we don't have a lot of time to look at, he exhorts elder, or excuse me, he exhorts the elders to teach workers to be godly at work. So the gospel not only transforms our character at home and in the church, but also at, at work. So we want to live lives that commend the gospel, not only here and among one another, not only at home among our family members but also at work. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, workers, be submissive to your bosses. What a a tragedy to to hear of Christians that are rebellious at work, showing up late, leaving early, 
They're well-pleasing. They, you know, people actually want you to work for them. They're not argumentative, not pilfering. In other words, they don't steal. Right? They don't check out early and check in late. But they show all good faith. I want you to notice here, at the end of verse 10, what happens when all of this comes together. That in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You know, the word adorn there is a word that we get cosmetic. Cosmopolitan cosmetics. We, when we live lives of holiness, we commend the gospel to others. It's attractive. You see? See, what attracts people to the local church isn't a dog and pony show up here. What attracts people to the local church isn't our programs and our children's ministries. That's all garbage. What people need is authentic relationships that lead them to Jesus. That's what they need. Well, they'll tell you other things. They'll tell you, you know, well, I, I need something for Johnny to do because he just is. No, no. What you need is an older sister in your life that's going to teach you how to love Johnny when he's not very lovable. See? You don't need children's ministry. You need older women training younger women how to love their children and their husbands. You need older men exhorting younger men to live lives of sobriety, lives of self-control, lives of holiness. The elders do not conjure up material to teach. We don't, we don't come up with our own teaching uh, material but we teach what accords with sound doctrine. That, and that alone is the test. That's your test, your responsibility. To test the elders' preaching. Is it sound? Is it sound? Healthy teaching will lead sinners to the gospel. Well, let's look very briefly, and I do not mean, again, to neglect these texts, but hope to get you out in a reasonable time where you don't begin to throw things at me and uh, your bellies, I know. Are beginning to growl. Well, finally, in verses 11 through 14, we see the proper motivation for the teaching ministry. I began by saying the aim, right, of the elders' teaching ministry is godliness. Well, the motivation in that teaching and your motivation to holiness is laid out for you here in verse 11 through 14. Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared. Why should you live lives of godliness? Why should you pursue holiness? Why should the elders teach and preach? Because Jesus has come. In verses 11 through 12, Paul says, our first motivation to godliness is Jesus' first advent. Christmas is upon us, is it? You ever consider that Christmas is a motivation to holiness? It is. That's what Paul's arguing here. He says, listen, Jesus came. He came to save sinners. He came to save you from your sin. That's why he came. He didn't come so that really awesome Christmas songs would be written about him. He came to save sinners and to save them indiscriminately. Paul does not mean in this text that Jesus came and saved all people, but that he saves all kinds of people. 
He didn't come to just one particular kind of people. He came to save all people groups indiscriminately of who they are. Jesus came to bring salvation. And notice here, verse 12, the effect of salvation, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives today. <laughs> right? You hear a lot of Christians say, you know, I'll just I'll never be, I'll never be without sin. I'll never be holy until Jesus comes in glory. And there's truth in that. Of course, we'll never be free from sin. But he says presently. Today, why are you putting it off? This good news, he says, trains us. That's a, athletically trains us. This is a word of work and effort here. And notice what it does in verse 12, to renounce and to, to live. Both negatively, it calls us to put off ungodliness and worldly Lust, and it calls us positively to live self control. There's that word again upright, godly lives. This is the point. You will be holy not because you work hard at it or because the elders teach well in it, but because Jesus came to save you. That's his point. In other words, your motivation to godliness is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's good. It's a promise. It's a promise. The, the promise of Paul in, in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. That's a promise. You know, when we we're singing earlier, how firm a foundation. That's the firm foundation that I will be holy, that you will be holy, not because you work hard at it, but because Christ has come that you might be holy. The gospel does something in our souls. It trains us to renounce and to live. You will never be holy apart from the gospel. That's what Paul began the letter with. You need a gospel that, that leads you to godliness. Well, quickly, notice here the second motivation to godliness. Verse 13 and 14. Our second motivation is Jesus' second coming. So the first advent and the second advent are our motivation to holiness. The work that Christ has completed and the work that is yet to be complete. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is saying this, pursuing holiness is our anticipation activity. Our anticipation activity. We are pursuing lives of holiness and anticipation of Christ's return. In other words, we're not just sitting around like, man, when's Jesus coming again? Is he coming today? When? No, no, no. We're saying, I am going to busy myself. I'm going to be upon the activity of holiness as I anticipate his new coming. Now, why are we anticipating it? Why are we so excited? Why are we waiting? Why are we like, come on, Jesus, let's go? Why are we like that? Why? Look at verse 14. Because Jesus Christ gave himself to redeem us and to purify us. To redeem us from ungodliness, from, from lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are characterized by what? 
man, they are radicals for good works. They're radicals for good works. In other words, it anticipates a new creation. Did you know that as a Christian you have not only been purchased but purified? That you've not only been purchased by Christ, that you are His possession, but that He promises to purify you. This text is a fulfillment of Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You've been saved to be a holy nation. This is what Peter wrote about. But, at, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession. That's who you are today. And that's who you will be in glory. That's our motivation. Nothing will stop you from being holy. The end is holiness. The motivation to obedience must be the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are not saved by good works. But we are saved for good works. That, that as I said, is he, as Paul wrote, is he who began a good work. We'll carry it to completion. Or as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, verse 10, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The coming of Christ and the return of Christ offers us all the motivation we need for holy living. And so the Lord is called. He's called elders to teach. To teach sound doctrine that leads to holy living. And let it be said here among us that, that the elders teaching ministry is always aiming at holy living. And I hope you've seen that it's not only my responsibility and the elders' responsibility to teach, but your responsibility to follow, to hear and to heed God's Word. Brothers and sisters, let us together as the body and bride of Christ pursue lives of godliness. Let that be our singular focus. For Christ has died. For Christ will come again. And you and I will be his treasured possession for all glory. Let's pray. Eternal Father in heaven, we conclude our time today asking yet again one simple prayer. Speak. Awaken our dead and cold hearts with the warm truth of your word. Breathe life into us, into our souls. Encourage us. Build up your church for your glory and our good in Christ, we pray. Amen.